Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Watts Radio. I'm Jeff. And I'm Hanji. And we'll be your hosts for this hour. This week, Watts Radio discusses hydrogen, the fuel of the future. Will it always be? It turns out it won't, but we'll talk about that towards the later half of this hour. So you'll just have to hang on in there if you want to find out more about the world of hydrogen. But before that, we're going to talk about Watts Current for our current event segment. Indeed. Then Jeff and I will do some collective Googling. That's where we Google so you don't have to. This week, Jeff and I Googled about blockchains. If you've ever heard of Bitcoin and have no idea what that is, well, we're going to talk about it with our limited knowledge that we've managed to gain in 10 minutes of Googling. Indeed. We'll also shout out to social media on Twitter and try to solicit ideas for future episodes of Watts Radio. If you have questions about energy or just want to shoot us some hellos, feel free to tweet at us at WattsKDVS. Indeed. And then, uh, Jeff, let's get started. We'll get started. So stick around if you want to hear about energy. Radio. Welcome back, Jeff. And this uh, current events for the week of February 3rd. That's right. It's going to be a good set of new things that's been happening in the world of energy. And as always, Jeff, you know, I'm pretty amped about current events. So, Hans, tell me what's currently happening. Well, Jeff, I uh, read about some new offshore wind this week in the New York area, actually. So this is a big deal because the U.S. is not known for building offshore wind. (laughs) In fact, especially on the East Coast area, there's this area known as Cape Cod. Or if you want to learn more about the wind farm that almost was but wasn't, uh, you can look into Cape Wind, which was off of Nantucket Sound. There was the desire to build a pretty large wind turbine, or I mean a wind farm, and um, the wealthy people living in Nantucket Sound area decided, no, we don't want that to happen. So it kind of didn't. But this, this is big news. We're going to put 15 6-megawatt turbines, which can power roughly 50,000 homes, um, just right near Long Island. Yeah, this is a big deal, Jeff. I I think, uh, you know, you have in New York a lot of, like California, um, a lot of uh, the uh, administration is well aligned towards um, renewable energy goals. Um, So there, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, uh, has a set of renewable energy goals that's calling for as much as 2.4 gigawatts. But, um, you know, in general, uh, you know, it takes these uh, great states, I like to say, to lead the way in the current era. That's true. And speaking of leading the way, you don't hear a lot about projects that have come in under budget and under time. But good news, solar panels, solar PV, has arrived early at its $1 per watt target that was set by the DOE back in 2010-2011 during their sunshot goal. Woo! All right! Woo! So the goal was to try and get... <laughs> the goal was to try and get solar panels um, at this utility scale level 
um, down to a dollar a watt by 2020 um, at a time when we were talking about solar panels being installed at about four or five dollars a watt. Um, so at the time that seemed impossible and here we are hanging out in the beginning of 2017 and we have started seeing installations at a dollar a watt. Um, there's a number of you know economic factors that have played into that, such as uh, increased supply in China um, from solar panels, decreased demand in areas like Europe right now, um, has really lowered costs, but still we're there, which is awesome. So that's a really good thing for uh, renewable energies. I mean, it's, it's pretty big. The issue is balance of system costs, aka labor to install this stuff, um, some of the various mounting um, uh, components. That stuff still is fairly high in cost, and getting those costs out of the system is going to be pretty tricky, I think. Indeed, Jeff. Yeah, so that $1 watt uh, tar- uh, number does come with some caveats. Um, but that being said, um, I've never thought of a better time to invest in coal. Um and That's so, right. uh, you know, President Trump, good job. Um, but so, yeah, uh, speaking of um, renewable electricity and low prices for utility-scale solar, um, renewable electricity is on track to meet the two-degree goal. Uh, never mind. Actually, that's not true. Uh, we're just kidding. But there are certain parts of the silver lining, let's say. Um, you know, CCS, coal capture and sequestration, has yet to arrive. And um, thank God for that, actually, I feel like. I think that uh, uh, any viability in CCS is just going to drag us further down the coal train. Um, but uh, nuclear also way behind we don't have enough nukes and jeff i know you're a big fan of nuclear energy so if we do care about these two degree or even 1.5 degree uh climate goals um we really can't just pick one single technology and say no we're just gonna ride the solar train all the way to success town um it's really a varied approach we're kind of out of the one size is good for everybody um kind of paradigm i mean it's we realistically do need to deploy carbon capture sequestration we need to start deploying like nuclear power um we need to rely on just about everything we have uh, that can get us um uh carbon reductions if we're going to meet these two degree goals so yeah wind and solar and i mean really hydro hydro and biomass is really what's on track um beyond its track of you know what is required of it to get to this two degree um kind of temperature goal, whereas nuclear, it's been level and slightly declining, and CCS is kind of just at zero. Uh, There's been a couple upticks recently, but mostly at zero. Um, And so this is coming out of a research paper by Glenn Peters, um, who's out of Oslo, Norway. Um, He's an academic that does research on what temperature goals might look like and what technologies we need for that. Um, So let's move away from technology in the energy space to get us to two goals and talk about camaraderie. Okay. Well, Jeff, I'm just saying though, CCS, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that it will help anybody do anything better. Um, yes, but Jeff, I love camaraderie. I enjoy when we spend our time together, um, talking about energy. I enjoy that time too. I think our listeners maybe enjoy that time as well. One can only hope. One can only hope. Yeah, but Jeff, no, I was reading about this this week. I I hear that, um, speaking of hydrogen, uh, Honda and General Motors, not two well-known comrades, are going to work together to develop hydrogen fuel vehicle technology. So that's pretty cool. So uh, Japan uh, has really been bullish on the hydrogen pathway. They're an island nation. The appeal of producing their fuels in their own country I mean, it, it, the allure of that, uh, that they haven't been able to succeed in that for centuries now, it's, it's hydrogen presents a new opportunity for them to produce fuel domestically. So Honda and Toyota have really been leading the way, leading the charge forward, if you will, on developing hydrogen technology. And here we now have General Motors teaming up with Honda. Um, they're going to try and get fuel cells. They're going to lower the costs. They're going to look at scaling up um Uh, vehicle platforms and operations. Uh, The two automakers together plan to invest $85 million um, into a new production line at an existing GM battery plant in Michigan. So, hey, that's jobs, 100 new ones, potentially. They took our jobs. Actually, they're creating our jobs with a clean energy technology, if only Trump was aware. They gave us jobs. (laughs) Um, And so we'll see what happens. Uh, Right now, Honda is looking to scale up their line, uh, their lineup 
in through 2030, so a good chunk of their offerings are hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Um, about 5% of their uh, lineup is hydrogen fuel cell vehicles today, um, which, uh, yeah, not too much. Not too much, Jeff. And I have to say, you know, to get to two-thirds of its vehicle lineup to be hydrogen, um, you know, that's going to take some serious changing in the infrastructure right now because um, I don't know if you've been out on the road lately, but there aren't a lot of hydrogen stations. Um, well, in California, there's a few, actually, outside of Davis. Uh, on the way towards Sacramento, you might see a hydrogen fuel cell station. Right. So the small handful of hydrogen fuel cell, hydrogen stations that no one has actually ever seen um, – uh, but they do exist. I promise you, they're like my girlfriend in Canada. They exist. Okay, they really do. Um, that being said, you know. Does uh, your wife know about your girlfriend in Canada? Uh, uh, we're gonna edit that out, right? Okay. <laughs> so, um, but you know, you know what I do see going everywhere? Uh, electricity wires—they're everywhere. And so, you know, I don't know hydrogen. I'm pretty convinced electrification—it can happen. We're going to have to talk a little bit more about that in the later half of this radio episode. But I think right now it's time to move over to the dark, dank corner of Watts Radio. Yes, you know who does like to talk about electrification? We're moving to the musky corner. (sighs) Do you smell that musk? It's Tesla doing their thing. So Tesla drops the motors. Tesla drops the motors. Indeed. Jeff, this was pretty um, uh, not not really groundbreaking news, but it was cool, is that Tesla has dropped motors from their name. So they followed in the great steps of companies like Apple. Apple Computers. That Um, used to be Apple Computers. Now just Apple. Now just Apple. Or uh, BP used to be um, British Petroleum. Now just... BP. Now just BP. Um, uh, various aerospace companies that have consolidated. I should have looked up some of these before I had to be quippy. At any rate, Tesla is now just Tesla. They're just one word. Eventually, maybe he'll just go to the symbol of the company formerly known as Tesla. Mm-hmm. Um, just but, like Prince. Yeah, just like Prince. But uh, Tesla, no, they are on the up and up. You know, they completed their acquisition of Solar City. Um, they are now, you know, the the biggest conglomerate of. Um, solar battery uh, vehicle and space exploration, I think. I think that they're probably the largest that has um, all all those interests um, somehow connected. So Yeah. Tesla, they're just, they're just knocking it out of the park. Their stock prices have been going up and up, um, as is the range of the Model S. So Tesla Motors, oh, no, the, the company formerly known as Tesla Motors, has extended the battery range for the new version of the Model S to 335 miles on a charge. Um, I think that is a good sign that maybe the Model 3 is going to come in at, well, it's going to come in behind schedule and overpriced. But, you know, it might come. Um, And on its website, the company revealed the new version of the Model S called the 100D with a 100-kilowatt-hour battery that can hold a charge for 20 miles longer than the previous best. So for those of you out there with a Tesla Model S who were like, oh, man, you know, I ran out of juice the other day because <laughs> I was, I was, you know, I could have made it home, but I was 5 miles, and I was 10 miles from home. We were 300 miles on a trip, and I couldn't quite make it. Um, I, I know there's an answer for you now. You, you can go out there and buy a bigger car. Um, you can you can buy the new one at full retail price, and me and Hodge will definitely consider buying your used, almost new Tesla at at least a dollar. At least at least a dollar. I'll give you a dollar. dollar. Yeah, no, it's it's true. So, and uh, they have had some big growth in their stock. Jeff was pointing out to me today that there, there's been some adjustments in recent days. Um, I was reading a few articles. If you look over the last several months, you you can see that the Tesla stock has. I got up by something like 70% or something. A huge amount. Yeah. It's, it's a frightening graph to look at. Um, it just goes up. And uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, it, it will not take the shape of a parabola um, to be determined. Um, but it looks pretty solid right now. Uh, with that said, we are not financial advisors, so do not listen to anything uh, that we say <clears> about <throat> stock prices a- ever. If you, yeah. Actually, Jeff, I think that they should listen to everything we say. 
but so, speaking of more Tesla things, uh, stuff that is within our realm of knowledge is energy. Um, they just decided to install a huge, huge array of batteries. It's um, uh, an absolutely magnificent uh, engineering feat. So they have an 80 megawatt hour battery um repository that they just stationed in Southern California, about 40, mi- 40 to 60 miles east of Los Angeles. Um, 80 megawatt hours of battery storage, that's huge. We don't, we haven't really used batteries to store great electricity at this scale before. Um, so that powers roughly, I mean, if you're using the batteries in this way, which you're never going to, um, it could power 2,400 homes for 24 hours. Um, that's, that's a good chunk of storage. Um, that's huge. Uh, this is about 400 refrigerator-sized battery stacks. So, you know, that's roughly about 400 Teslas stacked together in a field somewhere. Um, and so that's that's awesome. They're there today, right now. It only took three months to manufacture, ship, install, and have these things operational, which is amazing for an infrastructure project, really, of this kind of scale. Um, so that's cool. So uh, this was all supported as part of an emergency response from the Liso Canyon natural gas leak from last year, which was a huge um, carbon emission, well, a methane emission source for California, which was bad news bears. And now we have battery packs to uh, sort of make up for some of that. And and these lithium-ion battery packs, we put them in the grid, actually, are really pretty spectacular because um, they, you know, the size almost doesn't really do them justice because they have such fancy response time because you can, you know, put energy in and take energy out and you can use them for such a wide range of applications you know they 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 can cycle a lot of energy through on a daily basis and provide a lot of service into the grid and at the margins hopefully help enable more integration of renewables um, over time so it's it's important because if you're not having battery storage you're gonna have to rely a lot more on natural gas right which bad news bears bad news bears speaking Spe- of Bears that are bad. Dang you, Jeff. That was exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Bad news bears. All right. We, we've, got a, we've got a situation on our hands. We do. It's the Trumpocalypse. Trumpocalypse. Indeed. Jeff, um, you know, I have a hard time reading the news these days because every time I turn on my Google feed, I am forced to confront a bunch of news about Herr Trump. The new president of these United States. Every time I turn on my Google feed, I weep in despair at the new news that has been released. Um, Because that's, I think, kind of what it means to be a liberal living in California these days. A lot of weeping um, (laughs) over the state of affairs. Um, So I guess we can just rip the bandit off pretty quickly on this. Yep. Well, Trump signed some executive orders this week. You may be familiar with some of them. Um, there were some immigration orders as well as others that, that may have wide-ranging impacts. Um, we'll focus here on some that maybe are more relevant to the energy uh, sector. Um, one that I thought was interesting this week, he signed an executive order requiring the elimination of two regulations for every new federal regulation passed. What do you think about that, Jeff? Well, I don't think... He really understands how regulations work. I saw that as one of his like proposals on his website when he was, you know, candidate Trump um, before he was president-elect and then president. Um, and I just like that's probably the dumbest thing I've heard of because, yeah, maybe you can cut down on the sheer number of regulations, but you're definitely just going to make the regulations more complicated, longer bills of text that cover everything that the previous regulations would have done anyway. Right. Normally, it's helpful to break things up. Um, you know, my thought on this immediately was just that um, it's not like we're going to stop having new products, um, new chemicals uh, from chemicals from companies or new pharmaceuticals, new drugs entering the market. And, um, you know, as we continue to innovate and have new products and start to develop these things, you know, it just seems uh, sort of an odd, odd thing to think, oh, well, you know, we should always have less regulation, though. Yeah, especially, I mean, we're just going to have fewer, longer bodies of text. I mean, at some point you're going to get to, like, the there's no more regulations left to repeal, and you're just going to start, like, amending the Constitution or something, which is... Uh, Okay, so another news about Trumpocalypse now. Um, You know, uh, one of the Republicans' favorite um, agencies of the federal government um, are the Departments of Interior... um, um, something, and, oh, I forgot. Um, 
the department of um i think it might start with an e the is department it, of rick perry uh, yes the department of uh energy yeah uh, oh yeah. yes department of energy right and and uh actually there's been several reports in the last couple of weeks about the demise of certain parts of the department of energy uh, namely the office of renewable energy and energy efficiency um which was actually you know has its roots in the Nixon era um, and 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 has been popular among Republican Democratic parents actually since Reagan um, and and the e the Office of Energy uh, Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency settles on um, really their mandate is a lot about energy independence and uh, economic vitality of the market um, so uh, uh, at any rate um, as you may be aware. A young Rick Perry, a former governor of Texas, um, who's really big into renewable energy, uh, was nominated as the to be the head of the DOE. Um, Rick Perry would succeed um, Ernest Moniz, Moniz um, who uh, is a physicist, um, and Stephen Chu, uh, who is a Nobel laureate physicist, as the previous two heads of the Department of Energy. Um, Rick Perry has a bachelor's degree in animal husbandry uh, from the University of Texas, I believe. Um, so uh, qualifications aside, um, we we the uh, EERE or the EREE um, website had been radio silent for a while, and people were thinking, oh, no. It's uh, it's the dawning of the age of censorship, but um they they've just announced now uh thirty million dollars in grants for improving grid connectivity of renewables, which is great news. Um, it doesn't mean it's completely off the chopping block yet. So uh, we'll see what happens. Really, we're just hoping Rick Perry forgets about them and they get full autonomy. Indeed, Rick, don't worry about it, dude. What you can't if you in uh, fact, shh, don't 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 mention it. Yeah. Well, I was just saying, you know, um, if you can't remember it, it probably wasn't worth it in the first place. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of other DOE concerns to come. A lot of national labs are uh, staffed mostly with contract employees, not full-time government employees, federal government employees. So they can be eliminated fairly quickly if uh, the winds of politics so chooses. Um, that happened previously to NREL during the Bush administration. They laid off hundreds of people from NREL and then tried to hire them back really quickly at some point, uh, like six months or eight months later. Um, so, you know, that sort of thing can happen, and we're just hoping it doesn't. Indeed. So on that somber, depressing note, we'll play you some more cheerful tunes, and uh, we'll come back and talk about Google. Life can be unkind I've seen it in your eyes I've loved you all my life And loving you is fine But I won't let you go straight No, I won't let you go Cause we're just one big happy family So, so cold here And I'm so, so alone here Just a little vague Do you hear that? It's the sound of a bird tweeting. Welcome back to Watts Radio. We're surrounded by birds right now. What is that you're saying? Oh, you want to know how many Teslas it would take to get to the moon? Oh, what? Huh, what is Rick Perry doing? Oh no, there's all sorts of things happening. Do you want to get involved in the conversation? Watts Radio is now on Twitter. You can tweet at us, at WattsKDVS. Please do. It's our opportunity to interact with you, the listener, to talk a little bit more about energy and make it relate to your everyday life. You know what, Jeff? Coming up with ideas is hard. It's very hard. Very hard. And so, you know, if you like energy and us and radio, you should tweet at us and give us ideas. That way, we won't have to come up with everything entirely ourselves. We can also, you know, answer some of your questions for you. Yeah, 
please give us ideas that interest you. Please don't give us ideas that you don't find interesting, because that would be cruel. Yeah. So if you want to interact with your radio hosts, feel free to tweet at WattsKDVS. Do you hear that typing? Welcome back to KDVS. We're frantically Googling for you, so you don't have to. We'll Google for you. Yeah. And Welcome back, Jeff. Welcome back. I love some collective Googling. I love 10 minutes of collective Googling. That means we've now spent 10 minutes learning, or 20 minutes collectively, learning about a subject that we really don't know anything about. But now we're going to talk about it just to give you that cursory knowledge for dinner parties and awkward family encounters so you can just bust out some knowledge that you learned on the radio today. Bust out your knowledge, but only with people you know. So we're talking blockchain. Mm. Mm. Blockchain. Mm. So this is something now that I've actually tried to spend probably more than 10 minutes of Googling learning about. And every time I end up trying to find out what Bitcoin is, why it matters, I end up on this thing of blockchain. It's not just something that enables currency. It's more than that. It's and more. I try to find out what that more is, and people talk about, we're building businesses off of it. We're building an entirely new method for talking about building businesses off of it. And so blockchain to me has always been this weird, confusing thing, which is a great phrase to say when you just kind of want to sound like you know what you're talking about, but maybe don't. You know, it's like leveraging synergies. Now, instead of using the word synergies, you're just like, we're leveraging blockchain. Okay, so Jeff... Let's talk about blockchain. Okay, so there's lots of ways to discuss this, some of which are more complicated than others. Blockchain has its roots in this cryptographic way of sort of securing transactions. Um, the basic use of blockchain in currency within Bitcoin is to say that you have this way of tracking every transaction that that piece of money um, that little bit of of currency has gone through, and that that all those that information is public to some extent, so that that many people have to verify um, what is happening with some piece of. Blockchain. I have just completely lost you. I know. There's absolutely let's, just let's, no let's way. Let's back talk about up this. here. This is a really complicated concept. So I've now spent far too long looking at all the basic how tos that do not really make it simpler for what blockchain actually means, but I've read a bunch now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take a take a crack at it. Crack it, Jeff. So we, we talk about blocks. Let's start there. Imagine building up Lego blocks. Okay. Easy. Done. Each Lego block has a little bit of information. Okay, cool. With me so far. Um that, that's actually where my knowledge of blockchain stops. Now, um, <laughs> so once you build up these little bits of information, these Lego blocks, you distribute a copy of that block to a bunch of other people. So everyone knows what that block kind of looks like. Um, and everyone stores like an image of what that is. And now if someone were to go in and change a Lego from that block, it would change the entire block, and everyone else would look at it and say, hey, no, that's not what I have here. That's incorrect. And so it kind of invalidates it. Um, and so the concept is you have people working to build new configurations of Lego blocks, and then they can pass them off to the server, and the one that does it the quickest, the soonest, creates this new set of information that bundles things together. And that is what is now our secure currency. And so we pay the people sort of, that spend the time quickly configuring these blocks of information together, money, because they took computing resources, they managed to do it, and so they developed this new unit of secure information. Okay. Uh, good morning. I'm sorry. I fell asleep there for a second. So, yeah, so, I mean, the way that this works at some practical level is that there are these blocks of code, as, as Jeff was saying, like a string of numbers. And basically, you could think about them as like kind of the numbers on your check almost. Like they're a little bit of a number that identifies your account and uh, your check number. And basically, every time these blocks go through a transaction, a little bit of number, a few numbers are added, basically some new block of code. And, and the way that this works is that as the currency moves, you know, there's this trail, this digital trail, both within the identifier of the currency in the block chain, as well as by the blocks of where it's been and uh, who was involved. And so uh, the idea being here, you know, as Jeff was saying, that, like, there's some business models or something, is that I think um, 
you you decentralize uh, banking authority. So basically, you know, the the community of credit users, the community of currency users, becomes the bank of currency users. They become the verification system. You know, they're the ones with the pens that are like, this is not a hundred dollar bill. So so it's actually probably worth backing up a second here too. So Bitcoin is different from blockchain which is Bitcoin uses the fundamentals of blockchain to underlie its currency creation. However, there's a world of entrepreneurs and crafty individuals out there that know this technology much more than our 10 minutes of Googling has led us to understand it, that are developing new ways to transfer information, right? Because you create this distributed, mirrored set of information, and you can do cool things with it potentially. Again, these cool things I don't really know about because I've only spent like mm, 10 minutes to maybe an hour of my life trying to lead, read and learn about this technology. But um, there, there's maybe cool things in the future developed on this concept of fully decentralizing things. So there's some people out there that are trying to use this underpinning of um, working to develop informational bits, storing things in these bits, and distributing it widely to create decentralized internets. Um, so you don't have just one single server that holds all the information. This could be useful in the event that you know some administration tries to take down the EPA's website, for instance. Um, or you can do other things with it. But it might be worthwhile to go on the Bitcoin side of things and provide a sort of example of how Bitcoin works. So Bill is a fruit vendor. Sally wants to buy some apples for two fifty. Sally uses Bitcoin to pay Bill for the apples. And Bill presents Sally with his payment address. This is just basically like an account, kind of. Um, Sally uses the Bitcoin wallet on her smartphone. Um, she's presented with a screen where she can enter the amount to pay Bill. She types in 250 and presses send. A moment later, Bill's tablet notifies him that there's an incoming payment pending, which is not confirmed yet. About 10 minutes later, the payment is finalized, which means it gets confirmed. So... It's kind of this payment process. The weird different thing compared to like Venmo is this confirmation process. And that's where the blockchain comes in, right? So during confirmation, Sally's payment is only a promise. It hasn't been confirmed yet. People need to make sure she has the money to give, and then they need to assemble that money into basically put it into Bill's account. So to do that, some network participants that are called miners in the Bitcoin world work on confirming these transactions. So the miners grab all the unconfirmed transactions that exist. It's not just Sally's. It's a bunch of others. And they try to pack them together into a set. right? So it's kind of like Tetris, sort of, if you want to visualize it. And so the person that shuffles them in and gets them to all fit quickest um, generates a valid block. And that's the new block in this chain. And so anyone else that was working on it, theirs don't matter. It goes to the block that assembled it quickest, soonest, or something like that. And so that's the new block. And then this gets forwarded to everybody. Everyone checks the work to confirm that the work was done correctly, and it's a valid block meeting the rules of, of the algorithm. And then the transaction gets executed, the coins are now moved, and the transaction has been confirmed. And so, you know, it takes a little bit of time for this to happen, and that's the confirmation process. Um, and that's blockchain in a nutshell. That's a large nut, Jeff. It's a very, very large nut to crack. And there are applications for blockchain and energy, um, talking about things like grid resilience or figuring out how to efficiently deploy um, distributed generation because the blockchain methods kind of deploys distributed things efficiently, maybe. Um, so there are applications there, but we really can't talk about them because mm -hmm. our understanding of blockchain is not that great. There are also applications for thinking about, obviously, with... Um, I mean, the mobile payment systems aside, I mean, I think that some of the interesting things about blockchain as far as in data and in companies and supply chains and value chains are tracking goods. And so, you know, you could think that there's this identifier and it's a way to track um, the identity of a thing securely at, through some journey um, in a network. Um, you know, the blockchain framework works really well for thinking about tracking data or tracking goods in a value chain, maybe supplied products as they kind of become other products. Um, blockchain presents a way to kind of say, well, there's, you know, these five different things all come together and form this one other thing. And we want to kind of know, we want to track the, you know, the, 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 the ownership of all the goods as they came in, right? Because we want to know if they came from child labor or if they came from a really bad place or you know what have you they're stolen 
You know, this is blockchain is very good for establishing security um, on goods. So anyway, I think there's a lot of potential applications. <clears throat> I've been thinking about it with uh, freight goods, Jeff. I think that the blockchain thing might be really interesting for thinking about packages. If you order stuff too, and like you want to know where it came from. Yeah, I mean, I think the applications, if you understand how it works, maybe are endless, uh, but we don't really know. It's true. So um, with that said, I think we're going to play some fine listening tunes, and then when we come back, we're going to talk with Professor Joan Ogden about hydrogen and why it's not the fuel of the future anymore. It's happening today. With a girl on every shore Stay with them now But they won't see you no more Like a gypsy Forever on the run Stay for a while While you look for a home Like that sailor leaves Come back again Stay for a while And they won't see you again Like that gypsy caravan Up and go. That's how you show your love for me. Okay, I'm Joan Ogden. I'm a professor at UC Davis, and I work on alternative fuels and vehicles. And I head up a program of a whole bunch of researchers looking at different things like electric vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, and looking at what their future role might be in a low-carbon uh, energy system. What exactly is a low-carbon energy system? Well, of course, we're worried about climate change, or most of us are. And, <laughs> and one of the things we have to do is to reduce the amount of carbon emissions from the energy system. That's one of the big contributors to the extra CO2 in the atmosphere. And the, the piece of it I look at is transportation. That's a pretty major chunk, especially in California, where about 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from our vehicles, from transportation. So a low-carbon system is one that reduces the emissions of carbon, carbon dioxide, other gases that contribute to uh, the greenhouse effect. So, so we're looking at an energy system that doesn't do what we do now, burning lots of fossil fuels, spewing out lots of carbon, but relies on other sources like renewables that won't put all that carbon into the air. Okay, so you mentioned uh, hydrogen. Now, um, is that are you are this a, is that like the bomb? The hydrogen bomb. Or I mean, is this a, what do we do with the hydrogen exactly? So, uh, so hydrogen is a is a high quality fuel. You can use it with zero emissions in a conversion device called a fuel cell. A fuel cell is kind of like an engine, only instead of burning things, you combine things electrochemically and make electricity directly without having to go through burning and putting uh, pollutants into the air. So hydrogen is a really nice fuel. It also can be used super efficiently. Um, thing is, we don't have a lot of hydrogen just lying around loose, but we do have a lot of water, H2O, and we have a lot of hydrocarbons. Things like fossil fuels, those are hydrocarbons, but so is biomass, plant matter, things like crop wastes and energy crops. So there's a lot of hydrogen on Earth. We can separate it out from, from water through something called electrolysis, where we split H2O into hydrogen H2 plus oxygen, or we can process chemically hydrocarbons, things like fossil fuels or biomass, uh, and get the hydrogen that way. The benefit of using hydrogen, it's zero emission, it's super efficient, it's super clean. So it's an alternative fuel. You could use that instead of something like gasoline. Okay, Joan. So, you know, I have heard uh, occasionally people talk about this hydrogen fuel system, this hydrogen economy. And, you know, the thing that I always hear is that, like, uh, hydrogen fuel the or hydrogen, the fuel of the future, and it always will be. So so what do I, what, you know, take take that. I know you've heard this saying before. Come on, tell me tell me how you feel about that. What is, what is, is hydrogen always going to be the thing of the future? Well, hydrogen is ha starting to happen now. And I can say from a perspective of having worked on this for about 30 years uh, that uh, hydrogen has come a long way, baby. For one thing is uh, the conversion device I talked about earlier, the fuel cell, has developed from something that used to be bulky and clunky and inefficient into a really sleek machine. The first fuel cell vehicle I ever rode in was a truck, and the fuel cell took up the whole back of the truck. And this was a panel truck, so this was like the size of several refrigerators, right, that we were hauling around. This was put together maybe back in the, you know, 
late 1980s, early 1990s, just to see if you could do it or not. Since that time, and the automakers have done a lot of work on this, they've streamlined these, they've made them more efficient. Now a fuel cell fits under the hood of a small car uh, perfectly well. And so that is a really amazing uh, achievement. Um, and so the other thing is that hydrogen storage. Hydrogen is not as dense as gasoline. Gasoline is a very compact form of storage as a liquid. Hydrogen's a gas, so you have to compress it to a high pressure. It's a little bulkier. Used to be you had to put a lot of hydrogen tanks on a car to go any distance at all. Now, with a couple of um, uh, modern hydrogen tanks, uh, you have ranges of 350 miles, pretty similar to many small gasoline cars that we have around now. So the technology's come a really long way. And the automakers are building some really great cars now. There's some by uh, Hyundai, Toyota, Honda, and a lot of the other manufacturers, too, Daimler, GM, and so on, are working on these, too. But those first three are commercialized now, early commercial. And there probably are maybe 700 or 1,000 fuel cell cars running around just in California now. And that doesn't sound like very many, but for someone who's been watching this field develop, it's just an amazing uh, technological progression. One could say, well, it'll always be the fuel of the future. Well, it's starting to happen now. And uh, this is a particularly interesting time because we're starting to demonstrate hydrogen now, just not, not just one car at a time, but whole networks of cars and whole networks of stations. You're listening to Watts Radio, and we're talking to Professor Joan Ogden about hydrogen, the fuel of now. And so, Joan, you said that hydrogen's coming out. It's here now. We're starting to see it a lot. Um, well, I guess relatively a lot. But there's another thing that we're starting to see that people have been talking about for a while, too, which is electric vehicles. So have electric vehicles sort of leapfrogged hydrogen? Have they been able to develop so much quicker, and are they just better than hydrogen vehicles? Um, what's going on with this kind of maybe competition that's happening? That's a really great question. So there are two types of zero-emission vehicles, electric battery vehicles, and you're probably all familiar with these, maybe the Tesla or maybe you've seen the Chevy Bolt. And then there are hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. And both of them offer some of the same things. They both offer zero emissions. That is, there's no pollutants that come out of the tailpipe with either one. They both offer high efficiency, and they both offer the possibility to tap into vast renewable resources like solar and wind power that we don't use in our current system is 95% reliant on fossil fuels with, with internal combustion engines and gasoline. It's kind of a monoculture. Well, I think that in the future, we're not going to have a monoculture in cars anymore. I mean, right now, everything pretty much runs on internal combustion engines and, and gasoline or diesel. But in the future, I think we're going to have multiple pathways. And that's where batteries and hydrogen can serve different parts of the light-duty vehicle fleet. And pretty much all the automakers are developing both of those kinds of cars. So what's the difference? Um, Battery cars, as you mentioned now, the infrastructure already exists. There's infrastructure. You know, we have electricity in our houses. We can put chargers there. Um, it's easier to do that. Hydrogen requires infrastructure development. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But the other thing is, with batteries, you generally have a fairly long recharging time. And if you recharge in your house, for example, with the current that's available there, it's probably several hours to charge up. Um, if you... Uh, and they also have relatively short range. Batteries are still kind of expensive. The costs are coming down, but uh, in most cases, you're talking about 100, maybe a 200-mile range with a battery car. And that's a lot for a lot of every, that's plenty for a lot of everyday uses, but maybe not for a long trip. And we're used to our gasoline cars. Okay, we're going to take a long road trip. We go, we can refuel in five minutes. With a hydrogen car, you could still keep those aspects. So you'd have a long range, maybe 350 miles. You could refuel in three to five minutes instead of you know several hours or even half an hour on a fast charger. So behaviorally, you can use these two cars in different ways. Also, hydrogen cars can be bigger. Um, they can be larger cars. It's a little tough to make an SUV to run on batteries without packing an awful lot of batteries on there, which add to the weight and so on. It's just not that well suited to it. For hydrogen, you could have that kind of vehicle or things like buses or, or maybe even trucks. So the hydrogen's more suitable to the larger vehicles, the long range, the fast refuel time kind of way of being with a vehicle. The electric battery car, 
uh, better for short trips. Um, I know for 90% of the trips that I take in a car, uh, a battery car would be fine. But many people, there have been a lot of consumer studies on this, a lot of thought about it among the, the uh, uh, automakers are developing this. Um, they see a, a different. They see different parts of the light duty market. The other thing is, not everybody has a good spot to plug in at home. Uh, a lot of people do. I think there have been estimates in, uh, by some of my colleagues at uh, Institute of Transportation Studies that maybe in California, maybe fifty percent of people have a uh, a good place to plug in, and they're within say twenty five feet of a plug, so they could park their car. But not everybody does. And if you live in a city, you may not have access to a, a plug. You may um, be parking on the street. You might not have a private spot. So, so the automakers think that battery cars and fuel cell cars will both have niches. Battery cars have been out for about five years. Fuel cell cars are just coming out now in this kind of early commercial setting. Battery cars have done very well. There's over a million of them worldwide. I don't know the exact figure off the top of my head right now, but they've done really well. Fuel cell cars, we'll see how well they do. They're starting out now. But many see them as an electric vehicle platform. Uh, somebody from Toyota said it's sort of like electric vehicle without compromise. Fuel cells are electric, too. Fuel cells make electricity. Batteries have electric output. They both run electric motors with zero emissions. So it's kind of the next step, I would say. But So I don't see them as... Um, it's going to be one or the other. I would see them maybe taking over different parts of the transportation um, system. I, I guess you, you've touched on this, that hydrogen maybe offers advantages over batteries for like heavier vehicles. So if we talk about things like deep decarbonization, which is you know maybe getting the electric grid and using electricity from renewables is maybe easier than doing something like changing aviation or changing the trucking fleet over to renewable technologies. Is, is hydrogen really kind of the only way to do this? Or could we perceivably get to a more conventional battery technology? I think for aviation, you're going to kind of be stuck with a, a liquid fuel. Hydrogen can be liquefied, by the way. I mentioned storing it as pressurized. You can also store it as a very low temperature liquid. Um, for, for aviation, it may be that biofuels and, and other renewable liquid type fuels, that, uh, liquid fuels that can be derived from renewable sources like biomass, things that are grown, and so on. That may be the way we go with aviation in a really deep, deep decarbonization, like taking it all the way to zero. Um, with, uh, with the road vehicle fleet, I think there'll be some passenger vehicles that'll be battery, some that'll be hydrogen. When you get to larger vehicles, hydrogen works a little bit better. It's a little bit easier to store, and so on, than battery. Uh, so you might see this more in buses uh, you might see it more in uh, medium-duty trucks like delivery trucks, uh, last-mile trucks. You might even see it in uh, short-haul and long-haul trucks. You might see it in port trucks, things like that. I think those will all be markets where uh, there could be a, a role for hydrogen as we go down to zero. And the, there's so the, it's, in terms of those kind of applications, truck applications, that kind of thing, you could have liquid biofuels. You could have hydrogen. Um, it's probably going to be more difficult to do this with batteries in terms of both the weight and the cost. Uh, you could do some kind of hybrid drivetrain where you had a battery pack, but you also had an engine or a um, run on biofuels or a fuel cell. So there are a number of possibilities for those larger vehicles. I don't personally think it's going to end up being pure batteries, uh, at least with the technologies that are in view right now. And, um, People are certainly looking toward uh, hydrogen or biofuels. With biofuels, there's a limited amount of biomass you can make uh, sustainably. And so how we use that biomass in the energy system is something that people debate about, talk about. It may be for uses like aviation where it's really tough uh, to do this uh, with, with anything else. And so for Watts Radio listeners out there, we've actually previously talked with Dr. Nathan Parker about uh, biomass and biofuels and what that might look like. And if interested, that can be found on our website at wattsradio.org. You mentioned uh, costs in heavy duty where hydrogen maybe is more compelling than electrification for batteries. Um, 
But uh, how, how do costs with hydrogen compare to things? Are there any instances today where if you looked at a hydrogen vehicle or a hydrogen fueling system, it actually can outcompete uh, the current system? I mean, often we hear from electric vehicles when you consider cost of ownership over the lifetime of a vehicle and for what your typical driving behaviors are, it just economically makes sense. Are there cases to be made for hydrogen today, or when will that happen? That's a great question, too. I think the case for hydrogen... Um, They've been. I'm, I'm going to base. Uh, I'm sorry again. There've been. There've been a bunch of studies that have looked at comparing total cost of ownership for different kinds of vehicles, and some of them have compared uh, battery vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, and then things like gasoline vehicles, some kind of incumbent conventional vehicle. And most of these studies have found that once you get up to a certain level of mass production, uh, both battery vehicles and hydrogen vehicles should be able to compete on a life cycle cost basis when you take two things into account. The vehicle itself might be a little more expensive than a gasoline vehicle, but you'll save on the fuel because they're so efficient and because electricity or hydrogen can be made at a reasonable cost. Right now, hydrogen is made at large scale for industrial uses. In fact, it's used in oil refining, goes to make things like gasoline and so on, and other chemical uses. It's not widely distributed to consumers right now. But it could be. And in California, we're starting to build a network to do just that. And there are, I think, about 30 or 35 stations, hydrogen stations that are open in California right now. Those provide the fuel to those, you know, hundreds to about 1,000 vehicles that are out there now. And California Energy Commission and the Air Resources Board uh, project that we're going to see tens of thousands of fuel cell vehicles by 2020 and probably something like 100 stations by maybe the early 2020s. Uh, with a network of 100 stations, that's actually enough to provide fuel availability to early adopters of this technology. Um, and it doesn't sound like that many stations, but um, if you have the early adopters in the stations co-located, let's say in cities, let's say in the Los Angeles area, there'll be some in the Bay Area, probably some in Sacramento, uh, maybe San Diego, um, it'll be close enough uh, that people can get to that fuel um, in a, a reasonable amount of time. It'll be convenient. So that's one of the issues with hydrogen is building this new infrastructure. As you build it out, the cost will come down. And it's a matter of just getting up to scale. So it's, it's getting up to scale on two sides. One is on the vehicle side. And we're already seeing large factories being built to build batteries, manufacture batteries. We're starting to see the beginnings of that with fuel cells, which is the, the um, drivetrain part of the, uh, of the fuel cell vehicle. When we see those things and we see mass production, the cost will come down. And pretty much every study that's looked at that, including some that I've done and some National Academy, a lot of different people have looked at this, uh, indicate that maybe over the next you know, 10 to 15 years, you'll see this total cost of ownership uh, start to compete with gasoline cars. The other thing is gasoline cars are going to get more expensive. The hydrogen battery cars are going to come up to scale, probably get less expensive over time. But uh, you're probably going to see an added cost in gasoline cars because they're going to have to become more efficient if we stick with our current fuel economy standards. That means light weighting. It means a number of uh, advancements that are going to give you a lower gasoline consumption but also add to the cost of the car. So I think we're going to get there. It's going to take some time. It's not there right now. You know, one of the things that you were mentioning about thinking about, like, a, you know, a hydrogen future, a hydrogen economy, was a lot about the infrastructure. And the kind of, uh, you know, infrastructure is a really abstract concept. It's both, like, the thing that I drive on to get to work and also the, like, things that I use to make coffee in the morning. Um, so uh, at any rate, the change rate, like one of the things you were saying was that the rate of change of infrastructure is really slow, um, yeah. particularly for energy. There's a lot of inertia Indeed. built up in energy systems, especially the infrastructure. So so going back to kind of this electric vehicle piece, you know, saying, okay, well, you know, um, the technical potential the, for hydrogen to become a real viable transportation fuel pathway is right around the corner. But, okay, in the meantime... Iron Man, I mean Elon Musk, is pushing really hard to get everything electrified as fast as possible um, in a classic, you know, buy it all up before the backstop technology comes into play. So, so what, do you think that, what do you think that means in the medium term? You know, if we, if we get this big switch, 
we go we go big electric now because we want some reductions. We want to achieve it, especially California, which like wants to lead the world in in environmental good. What do we, what does that mean for hydrogen? Does it is it a setback? Is it is it a leapfrog? Is it like are is electric vehicles an enabling technology in the long run for hydrogen? Tell me. Well, I would say hydrogen and electric vehicles have some technologies in common. They both use electric motors, for example. They use a lot of the same gear. They just provide the electricity differently. Fuel cell puts out electricity when you feed it hydrogen and air, and the battery puts out electricity that you've stored it with. So they, they definitely have some things in common there. I actually don't see, um, I, I don't see as much conflict, perhaps, as, as some. And the reason is that I do see different niches of the light-duty vehicle, the passenger vehicle market. There are simply some people who would not buy an electric battery vehicle to be their only vehicle because they want to act like they've been acting with their gasoline vehicles for a long time in terms of, I want to refuel in, in five minutes. I want to get up and go. I want to just hit the road and, and do that, and I want, a big, I want a big car. Maybe I want to be able to, you know, something I can stick all my skis on top of or even haul my boat with. I want something that's, that's bigger. Um, and so for those folks, they may hang back a bit in the zero-emission vehicle market and then pounce when the fuel cells come. So it's just a question, I think, of whether you think batteries can do everything that people in passenger car markets want. They can do a lot, um, and that is for sure, and they're doing very well. But even so, even with, uh, it, it takes a long time to completely so-called turn over the fleet, that is go from all gasoline cars to all electric cars, say. Even if we started tomorrow and every car sold was an electric car from now on, it would still take 10, 15 years before we had changed out all the old gasoline cars. And in practice, nothing ever goes that fast, right? We have market penetration. We have maybe a few percent of vehicles being sold now are electric vehicles in the, in the hottest markets, maybe in Norway. Maybe we have 15, 20 percent being sold are electric vehicles, battery vehicles at this point. But that still is a pretty long glide path to completely taking over the fleet. So I think given, again, these fairly long time constants, we're starting to see the fuel cell vehicles come in now, about five years after the battery vehicles in this kind of early commercial market. And, uh, and we'll, we'll just have to see how that plays out. And part of it is going to depend on what consumers want. When they get enough of these vehicles out there, the hydrogen vehicles, that people are trying them out, you know, and they'll see that they like it. Can they refuel conveniently? Is it a fun car to drive? All of those questions. I think uh, we'll see how the market uh, decides that. And then the other, un the other, you know, kind of uncertainty is how far down the cost of the vehicles are going to come. Uh, the cost of batteries have come down a lot. The cost of fuel cells are coming down and projected to come down even more. I think we're gonna we're gonna see uh, how that how that shakes out. And different people may, um, they may either tailor their behavior, and it may be that people won't drive as much in their private vehicles in the future, too. They may be uh, using more of things like Uber and Lyft and, and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, so I, I think it's, it's unknown how those fractions will sort out, but I think actually that there'll be a kind of a, a bifurcation of the market that you'll see some covered by electric battery cars and some by fuel cell. We've been talking to Professor Joan Ogden about hydrogen, the fuel of now. It's not just the future anymore. Um, and that about wraps it up for part one in this interview series. Uh, please tune in next week where we'll continue talking to Joan about what it means to move over to a hydrogen future and whether or not that sort of thing is actually
was happy till I waited in my sorrow Waiting on tomorrow left me in debt to the time borrowed How we hollow but still full of an emotion Loaded like bullets hit inside the minds of magazine A dream that I read the full clip Trying to communicate to those who just don't understand Sometimes life feels so hopeless I wanna die But helping hands to keep carrying my weary soul Something deeper is in control Need to find a way outside the drama that's become my show Got us lost in trying to find the answer Sobbing and smiling, we might as well laugh as we die of cancer Money did help me with problems, but it's yet to solve them What's the reason for breathing, holding babies Reminds me why I'm so grateful for beautiful blessings I've been given, learning precious lessons From the presence of elders and children The secret of life has been hidden, but I'm driven To manifest what I need to protect myself from this hell we live in